Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts. Simply hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts now. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Something is Court judgment notes for Barry Clue. The Crown lawyer notes the particularly high level of personal deceit and breach of trust, the targeting of vulnerable, elderly, and ill victims, and the element of personal gain. He said the aggravating circumstances of the offending place it within the most serious range of cases. This episode, we peel back another layer of the Ponzi onion that Barry Clue planted way back. Like way, way, way back, almost 40 years earlier. I'm Sarah Ferris and you're listening to Clueless, the long con. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. And simply, it's flat out fraud. He was not investing the money in what he said he was. So if I went to Barry and said, you know, we drew up an investment plan and we were going to put 100000 in a term deposit at the BNZ on a revolving credit basis and we were going to put 100000 in Fisher & Paykel shares and we were going to put 100000 into a life insurance policy for argument's sake. None of that money would go to any of those places, although I'd be given a statement telling me that where it had gone. And then it would then go off to other purposes. Either Barry would, you know, pay out other clients with it or he would pay his car lease for the year or going out for dinner, flying overseas. He was defrauding the processes that were designed to protect people. And even though it was quite rudimentary the way he did it. If you have a gift for spotting voices, then you might be starting to recognise that the first one was Mike Houlihan from the Otago Daily Times, followed by Hamish McNally of Staff. Now, both of those reporters have followed the case from the moment it broke. And oftentimes it was their words in the early days after Barry Clue's arrest in 2019 that kept the victims informed, gathering the facts as they came to light of the how. But before I get into the how, I want to start untangling the why. Just why does someone do what Barry Clue did? Luckily, I know just the man to answer that. 
Hello, Cruel World. My name is Dr. Shahan Das. I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist. So I assess mentally disordered offenders for a living and I work as an expert witness giving evidence in criminal trials. Now, you may have worked out that I'm quite partial to the odd pun. So it was only natural that when I discovered that Dr. Das had a YouTube channel, very popular one, by the way, I was immediately drawn to the name, A Psych for Sore Minds. Love that. So with all that on his plate, I was grateful that he agreed to let me add a side dish of Barry Clue to his day so he could shed his professional insight on the why. The thing that really strikes me compared to other fraud that I've either sort of read about or dealt with myself personally is just the level of patience. So he really like was extremely cunning and conniving, right? He waited 40 years. Uh, yeah. like most people, regardless of whether they're con artists or not, would not have the delayed gratification to wait that long. They would just, they want their uh, riches much, much sooner. Even, you know, delaying it for a couple of years is quite a big cognitive load to take on all this guilt for such a long period of time, but he could do it for decades. Uh, so that mm. is extremely unusual. And we'll be hearing more from Dr. Das throughout the series. But for now, I want to head back to the victim's stories. Over the period of years and even decades, Barry had patiently sold debt reduction plans and insurance policies all with the patience of a homeschooling parent. He sat by and watched as victim savings built up over time. We were able to afford to put away $1,000 every month out of our savings. And of that, we had to budget to make sure that money went away each month. I put $1,600 in each fortnight. So it meant that I was living on pretty little, really. I'd been putting in $500 a month into discovery. Now, what is discovery, I hear you say? Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit here and refer back to the judge's notes because the judge sums it up a lot more articulately than I ever could. His summary describes both discovery and another company of note in this case, Concilium, as custodial investment wrap platforms. That's wrap like a present, not to be mistaken for wrap like Gangster's Paradise by Coolio, for example. It's a bit of a mouthful. But essentially, a custodial investment wrap platform is an online service where investments belonging to the same investor are bundled together, giving the ability to trade in overseas shares. I guess the best way to think of it is an online ledger where the authorised financial advisor, in this case Barry Clue, and the clients would be able to track all legitimate investments that are made on that platform. So essentially, it's a one-stop shop for investors managed by their financial advisors, wanting to diversify their portfolios into legitimate stocks and shares, just like my father-in-law, David. We weren't looking for some crazy investment that was going to double our money. We just wanted slightly above what the banks were paying and we wanted it locked away in good blue chip stock, basically, and spread out over a number of investments, which he agreed. And he duly told us that he'd invested that and sent us a statement. And at that stage, that was under the Discovery portfolio, which was later changed to the Concilium platform. So our early statements had a Discovery letterhead on them. And he did send us monthly statements. We had no reason to doubt anything that uh, we were receiving. It all seemed quite above board and ticking away quite nice. And of course, David wasn't the only one. By the time Discovery and then Concilium platforms came online, many of those clients of Barry's were coming into some pots of money from savings, for example, like Gary and his wife, Mary. 
all our money was signed to Discovery Portfolio. I'd say the very first sum we put in maybe around about 20000 and that was all of our savings. And as time went by, Barry's clients were adding lumps of cash as they came to hand. Little by little, he was converting the debt reduction and insurance clients into investors. So we made three investments with him. We did the insurance, my husband's superannuation amount, and then there was another one in 2016. The insurance was about 60-something thousand, so he took that and started the investment portfolio. And then my mother passed away and her property was sold, and so there was another 40000 that we had, so we did that, and then we just continued to put money away. Mm. And the first chunk of cash that I gave to him, you know what, I think it was about $40,000. And he said, give me that, we'll put it into a portfolio. And I can remember transferring forty grand. And when I did, that was the most money I'd ever transferred in my life, ever. And I can remember now thinking, going through my mind, how do I know where that's going? I can remember thinking it. But it went, and it's fine. Baz has got it, and then the report started coming in. And to the point where I was then investing money on a monthly basis, every either fortnight or month, accumulating funds with him, and he was investing it in the spurious discovery portfolio, and we now know what it wasn't. Well, we will get to what discovery wasn't in due course, but I want to pick up on something Richard said there. Asking the question to himself, how did he know where the money was going? And then quashing that gut reaction. But he had no tangible reason to act on that feeling. Here's Dr. Das with the why. I think it's all about grooming. And what surprises yes. me about Barry Clue is how effective he was at grooming. So grooming, is, as you'll know, is where you, you know, if you come up to somebody, especially somebody you don't know, even somebody you do know, and you say, I've got the scheme that's going to give you a great return and you're going to get thousands of pounds, then unless somebody's very gullible, no one's going to believe you. So the way that, group, that people work is they gain small bits of confidence over increments over a long period of time usually months is very unusual for it to be decades like this man but it's like the slowly boiling frog you know the frog doesn't know he's being boiled because the temperature's rising well barry had certainly set his pot to simmer a long long time ago and the investors were none the wiser and of course why would they be everything seemed in order we received monthly statements and they were very detailed code numbers broken down into dollars and cents all the entities are listed there and the returns that he showed, they went off the planet. They were only modest above inflation. It was all broken down into those different companies. My accountant had a look at them. Nobody spotted anything. It was a low-risk portfolio. If you look at the big picture, a luxury that I know only hindsight provides, it shows that Barry didn't appear to have automated his Ponzi paperwork because the statements that Barry was sending out, they were very much on his timetable. He would give us the odd report now and then to say it's grown. Gary wanted them every month, and he said, there's no way I can do them every month. He said, I might be able to do them every six months. And at one stage, I actually asked him to provide them on a monthly basis. I did that a couple of times. He said, forgot or decided not to do that. And Gary said, six months. I'd prefer three monthly. But he said, oh, I'm just so busy with everything, blah, blah, blah. But he just kept pushing back every time Gary asked him, and he'd make an excuse every time. And a portfolio evaluation statement, I mean, absolutely stuff all, big bullshit, absolute bollocks. I can imagine the scene in my head. 
Barry Clue sitting in his office with the money cookbook displayed proudly on the shelf right behind him, tip tip tapping away on his keyboard. But what I can't imagine is just how many minutes, how many hours, how many days, probably actually weeks did he spend sitting there consciously crafting his fictitious funds into being with the creation of those statements. And I can't be the only one that finds that hard to comprehend. You would have to be mad to do it. Or would you just have to be very, very bad? So your listeners have probably heard of not guilty by reason of insanity. And that threshold is very high. So it's only actually found in a very small proportion of cases. And to reach that threshold, you either didn't know what you were doing or you didn't know that it was wrong. To use the hypothetical situation, either you literally thought that you had so much money that you could replace it easily. So you didn't think that you were ripping people off money. You'd have to be pretty unwell to have those kind of thought processes. So those are the kind of people that would be in and out of psychiatric hospital and would be extremely unwell. They're not kind of sophisticated fraudsters that you tend to see. So in your experience, you wouldn't expect to find a fraudster sitting in that mad column. Yeah, exactly right. I think I've seen it once in my career. It was a very low-level fraud and completely separate to that, she actually had schizophrenia. But fraud was a a coincidence to her mental illness. But from every other case that I've seen of fraud from my professional career, I've never seen a case. Um, I've seen some people trying to uh, convince the court that they were unwell, like the woman I talked about in my book, but I've never actually seen a credible case. Just a side note, Dr. Das is referencing his book In Two Minds, which is another great play on words. In that book, there is a chapter on the case that he mentions. And if you want a deeper understanding of just why catching con artists is like catching smoke in your bare hands, then check it out. It's illuminating. But back to Barry Clue and his slippery con artist brethren, who I think one can fairly surmise fit into the bad, not mad category. So that leads me to wonder, what does actually make them tick? The most obvious one, you don't have to be a psychiatrist to call this one out, is greed. So people who are career fraudsters don't just have an ordinary level of greed of wanting, you know, nice things to project a certain image. They go beyond that where they're almost never satisfied with whatever kind of financial gain they get. Well, that word greed certainly rings true for what I know of Barry Clue and his insatiable appetite to consume retirement dreams and family legacies. After the break, we take a look at just where Barry draws the line. And spoiler alert... He might as well be using invisible ink. If you're enjoying Clueless the Long Con, then check out other podcasts by Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping, 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, Mm. all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. 
and I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story, Conning the Con. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. So my name's Kim. I'm turning 60 this year, but scary really. I have had four children, one of whom died seven months after he was born in 1993. And we have two young adults now with what they call fragile X syndrome. So it's the second most common cause of intellectual disability next to Down syndrome. But it's very underdiagnosed and a lot of people don't know a great deal about it. You may remember Kim and her husband Adrian from earlier episodes, but I want to take a bit of a deep dive into their story. Now, Kim is a registered nurse by trade with a properly unflappable personality. If crap goes down, Kim's the person you want on your team, and you'll see why I say that later. She was, in fact, a manager of the emergency department in Dunedin Hospital for seven years, which, having met her, totally tracks. And just like that old chestnut of a saying, behind every good woman is a good man, meet Adrian, Kim's husband. Well, I'm a qualified diesel mechanic. That's what I do. I've worked most of my life pretty hard. I probably should have retired when I was 40, the amount of hours I've done. And I've just worked to support the family. And we've had some tough times, like when we did lose our son. And then to have uh, a diagnosis of fragile X was pretty tough. Bradley's our youngest child. He's 24 now and he has fragile X syndrome and intellectual disability. And so with that go uh, a lot of challenges and he still lives with us at home. So let's crank up the TARDIS and head back to the early 1990s. Kim and Adrian found themselves at a wine tasting evening. I think you can guess where this is going. Q. Barry Clue, whose recruitment seminars seemed to be getting a little bit more razzle-dazzle as time marched on. It seemed he wanted to help. He seemed genuine. We understood he was appropriately qualified. So, yeah, that seemed to be all above board. Very outgoing. He was bending over backwards to help you. But regardless of Barry's charm, Kim and Adrian were just not in a position to invest at that time. Over the next decade, other more pressing matters occupied their lives and thoughts of retirement, well, they were far from even on the peripheral of their daily realities. Daniel was born in 93. He was born prematurely, so I had a very troublesome pregnancy up until 24 weeks and then he was born and then he lived in hospital for seven months before he died. We were just so totally distracted by what was going on with the family and then we ended up in the disability sort of cycle. At that time, we'd also saved 
a lot of money for Bradley. A lot of it was support money, but we obviously supported him and we just put his money aside. That's his because he's got no future. He'll be very lucky if he ever gets a job. He's quite capable, but there's so many barriers. By the early 2000s, Kim and Adrian had managed to come up for air and glance one eyeball towards the future. And it scared them. They were about halfway through their working lives. By that stage, they'd managed to pull together a savings pot of around $10,000. And they had a separate savings account that was all Bradley's support money, which had built up to a grand total of $17,000. Kim in particular knew that they needed to make that money work for them. And just like when you need legal advice if you go to a lawyer, they needed financial advice. So they sought out an authorised financial advisor. And who are you going to call? Dunedin's very own dream buster, Barry Clue. Barry knew full well of our full situation and we discussed Bradley. This was his investment so that one day he will be able to perhaps buy his own place to live. We didn't want him ending up in a home or in an institute. If something happened to us, we can't bear the thought. It just would destroy him. With the initial lump sums invested with Barry, they also start paying into the investment portfolio out of their regular paychecks, socking away just whatever money they can afford at the time. And then, sadly, in 2008, Adrian's mother passes away. And her property was sold, so there was another 40000 that we had. We thought we'd put it in, and that would make it grow even bigger, quicker. And then we just continued to put money away. And we actually started on a bit of a property development scheme. We did a lot of work ourselves with that, but just to save money. But that's because Adrian's got the skills to do that. And I'm happy to be the labourer. Yeah. Kim mixes a mean mixer full of concrete. <laughs> She's great. So basically with our property, what we did was we had an old villa. We bought the house next door. We could subdivide across the back and we could have two houses plus a property to build. So this is where the tendrils of Barry's Ponzi scheme start sticking to other parts of Kim and Adrian's life. Step one of this project was getting a loan for the purchase of the property. It was to be a 100% loan, so no money down, but proof of equity to support the value of the borrowing. And where had they been squirrelling away said equity? Time to call Barry and find out just how much they had, because without proof of that portfolio, they would have no security against the house they were purchasing. I mean, I imagine Barry must have been sweating bullets when he got that call. And just through our equity and what he said we had, what he said we had, he said we had 150000 there. And we managed to go to the bank and he supported us in that. Yeah, I bet he did. Now, this is where the waters get murky, because even now with hindsight, some of the victims can't tell the point at which Barry stole from them. Some, it was from the moment that the ink dried. Others, well, we'll come to that later. But in this particular instance, Kim and Adrian could buy the property only if the portfolio was legit, or Barry's forgery could pass muster. Now, if you've ever had to fill in a mortgage application, then you know that proof of funds is the biggest hoop to jump through. And so the fact that the bank supported the application would make you think the former, that the property at that point in time was legitimate. But it's Barry's reaction to the next piece of the property plan 
that has me leaning towards the latter. That, in fact, the author of The Money Cookbook was quite the master of cooking the books, so much so that he could trick the bank. And then once we'd bought that property, then we had to look at getting a loan to build the home. So he set it all up for us. He just took over. And essentially, in order to get to the end point, we had to borrow a lot of money. And there was a lot of trouble right at the get-go between the bank and McCrayway, who's the building company that we were with. And we didn't understand what was going on. And it wasn't till much later that I discovered that he had an extraordinary involvement in that process, Mm. more so than anybody would expect, but nobody said anything to us. Kim and Adrian's portfolios will have been needed as proof of equity again at this stage. So if all was legit and above board with the portfolio, Barry should have been able to spend maybe half an hour At the most, emailing proof of funds and heck, then he could kick back and put his crocodile encased feet up on the desk. So the lawyer commented to us, he's getting a lot more involved than he should be. He's hassling the bank, he's doing this, he's doing that, whereas that wasn't his job to be doing it. And we did actually end up having a lot of trouble to the point that we had to change banks. Okay, so the less cynical amongst the listeners may be thinking that Barry was getting right up in the bank's grill because, like the sign in his office said, he was committed to excellence. And those of the more cynical ilk, myself included in that, well, have you ever heard about those criminals that insert themselves into the investigations of the crimes that they themselves commit? Just saying. Keep your friends close and... Maybe anyone who's got the potential to expose your Ponzi scheme closer. But is it actually plausible to think that Barry could pull the wool over the eyes of the bank staff? And I think that's possibly the key. Barry's dealing with people. This is Dr. Das's take on why even the bank staff aren't immune to a con. So have you seen the Tinder swindler? Of course I have. Yeah. Of course I have. That's, yeah. that's an absolutely perfect example of somebody who's um, really adept at grooming. So I'm sure this mm. guy Barry was as well, but the Tinder Swindon, he created this image before he got into any money troubles that was so bulletproof because he'd he'd exposed these women to his lifestyle several times. Mm. So over yeah. time, they had no reason to doubt him. What I'm saying is to be a, a good, effective fraudster to, to get the average mark, you have to actually be very um, charming and you have to be able to groom people. And I think that's a misconception, isn't it? That you can't be conned. It is that missing piece of the puzzle, the grooming, isn't it? That yeah. That's the recipe. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. By the way, if you haven't watched The Tinder Swindler, it's a documentary that you can find on Netflix. But do me a solid and wait until you've finished this podcast before you rush off and watch it, eh? So let's just get ourselves back up to speed on Kim and Adrian's property project. They have had the mortgage accepted for the purchase and then a second amount of borrowing for the build of the house to go on it. I can only imagine that Barry must have been having conniptions, having had his feet put to the flames not once but twice in quick succession. Kim and Adrian, however, were none the wiser. Didn't even smell a hint of a singeing pinky toe. And at the end of the day, with that 150000 we had heaps of security. There was no problem. Like, it was... It wasn't a big deal. If we hadn't had that 150000 it would have been a bit dodgier. 
You'd think that Barry must be feeling like he was out of the woods on this one. But he's about to find out that there really is no rest for the wicked. Adrian Uh, lost his job about two months before the end of the build. Ideally, I would have liked to have kept the properties, but we started to get a bit of pressure and we talked to Barry about it. What are we going to do here? I've lost my job, blah, blah, blah. So we were talking about we think we should just pull out the 150k and pay, pay the off, mortgage. Pay off the mortgage and so that then we, we've got no problem. We've got no problem and then it doesn't matter how long it takes Adrian to get a job or what needs to happen. Q Barry sweating bullets at this stage. I imagine he's saying something along the lines of, Oh, right, so you want the 150k that you gave me to invest back out. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. Or how about this? He says, oh, I've got a property in Alex that's got an outside light that's broken and and my sprinkler system doesn't go. Do you think you could do that sort of work? And I says, yeah. What else? He says, oh, I want a kitchen put in this little cottage that's there as well. Oh, yeah, I can do that. He says, oh, work for me. So he ended up going up to Alex and working for him. So that's on hindsight a red flag. Major. But how do you see that? He's gone out of his way to manipulate and make sure that the money that we had invested stays where he wanted it. Another bullet dodged by Barry. Honestly, he's like a cat with nine lives, this guy. Now, over those next few months, things settled into a rhythm with Barry and his newest employee, Adrian who starts working on Barry's property up in Alex, which is a little town in central Otago a few hours away from Dunedin. Of course, unbeknownst to Adrian, he's actually working on a property that his $150,000 investment most likely helped to purchase. So I took Bradley with me and and he had this little ride on lawnmower and Bradley learned to drive it. And this was his little tractor and it had a wee trailer and I would cut all the trees up or cut all the branches. He would load it onto the trailer and take it to his dump site, he'd call it, you know. So, and Barry saw this and he, you know, he encouraged it and he seemed to support it. And naturally, working that closely together, there was a shift in their relationship. Well, it was more friendly, absolutely. Bradley and I would spend up to seven or eight days, ten days up there. So we'd be up there, Kim would come up, and he would quite often come up for a weekend, just chill out in the weekends. So we would just discuss the property and talk generally about different things and have a barbecue and a beer. Around that same time, Barry's extended family did suffer an unexpected loss. He was pretty distressed about that, and because we'd lost a baby and he knew that, we did spend a bit of time talking about that. So we certainly empathised with him. Like I talked about the fact that I understood the grieving process. So I, I don't know, it did seem that there was a reasonable connection there. You can certainly hear the confusion in Kim's voice there, and rightly so. It is so outside the realms of how normal people operate. Here is Dr. Das's take on it. So most kind artists will have some degree of distance from their victim. And even like victims who are in a romantic relationship with somebody they ripped off, I mean, that's still pretty heartless, but that's different from knowing, knowing a family for decades and to have a child with a fragile ex that you're spending time with knowing that you're basically screwing over their future. I mean, that's just like a next level 
lack of uh, lack of compassion and empathy. Fast forward to 2019. It's April. Barry's asked Adrian to start major refurbishments on a cottage that's on that property in Alexandra. No problem, says Adrian. Might be easier for me to bring my house bus up and live in that whilst I'm working. He's going to be 60 soon, so you want the odd creature comfort. And there is talk of retiring. So we had a meeting with him on the 9th of May. Yep. And I'm going to draw up a new plan and we're going to sit down and work it all out. And because I'm a good guy, I'm going to do it for nothing. That's when he gave us a statement that says you've got $152,000 worth of investments. Kim and Adrian left that meeting with Barry Clue on the 9th of May feeling pretty chuffed that all their lifetime of hard work and saving for Bradley's future and their own was finally coming to fruition. Adrian could celebrate his 60th birthday with an eye on retiring. Life was good. Well, for all of 15 days. Fast forward to the evening of the 24th of May. Kim is at home alone and Adrian is out at the pub for what he likes to call Thirsty Thursday. She knows what's going to pour through that door later, so Kim's making the most of an evening on the sofa, not sharing the remote control. She gets a message from an old friend, and we'll call him Tony for the sake of the podcast. They had shared many evenings out together over the years. Of note, Tony had once been kind enough to invite Adrian and Kim to a wine and cheese evening back in the early 90s. Things were about to come full circle. And he says, oh, have you seen what's online on ODT that's going to hit the media tomorrow? And I said, no. And he says, oh, serious fraud office raid on on Barry Clues. Kim's phone isn't the only one beeping, as Mike Houlihan's Otago Daily Times article spreads through Dunedin like wildfire, and with it, a ripple of rising panic. And with the serious fraud office uncontactable, well, that's when Mike's phone starts ringing. Off the hook. It was like I was running some kind of sinister reverse telethon where every time I took a phone call, I would add to the total of victims and the amount of money that had been lost to this case. In fact, that was a terrifying sort of a night. I couldn't believe that he would do it, but I did have a niggling feeling that we've lost everything. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Coming up in Clueless, the long con. I says, but you stole from my son who has a disability. How could you do that? He couldn't answer. He just started crying. I know you're going to speak to a Mrs Church. That story is horrific. Chris was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. He was so completely at peace. He had made this plan that was going to be his legacy for his family. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively, Uh, acts aggressively. So I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things. Don't forget to subscribe to Clueless, the long con, so you'll never miss an episode. This is an independently made podcast. You can find out more on Instagram at Podcast. That's con with an N. Please support the podcast with a five-star review, a share on social media, or even go old school and tell a mate on a dog walk to have a search Clueless the Long Con, wherever they listen to their podcasts. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Something is creeping.
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.